Can you make Fillmore wild for us? Can you humanize him for us? I think my favorite detail about Millard Fillmore is he had a really, really hard childhood. I mean, he was basically sold off by his family. He didn't know how to read. He, in a kind of fun twist, became the first president to establish a library in the White House. That and so much more coming right up on today's episode of The Podspotter. Hi, you're listening to The Podspotter. I am your host, Zach Robodas. There are just too many podcasts out there for you to weed through, and that is why I am here. I'm going to do the heavy lifting, going to find the diamonds in the rough, and every Monday, I will talk to the creators, the hosts, and we're going to learn about their pods, play clips, and if you find it useful and entertaining, subscribe to our pod. Visit thepodspotter.com on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at thepodspotter for extra content and info on upcoming shows. Thanks, everybody. It's really a pleasure. I've been screening hundreds of podcasts. On Wednesday, January 20th, the presidential oath of office will be recited by the 46th president of the United States of America. Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. will stand before the American people and outline his vision for the next four years. It has been a tumultuous few years, to say the least. The global pandemic seemed to turn the collective monoculture's eyes away from Netflix and sports and instead focus them on the otherwise obscure dates on the electoral calendar. Super Tuesday was watched like the Super Bowl. We found ourselves counting down to Safe Harbor Day like it was Christmas. Primaries, caucuses, and conventions all scrutinized and analyzed with the same fervor we once reserved for an Academy Awards red carpet fashion show. And why? Because it all felt so unprecedented. Ah, there it is. I said it. That word. Drink. According to Google Trends, the word unprecedented on a popularity scale from 0 to 100 went from 8 to 100 over the past four years. 45 hasn't just changed how we talk about the leader of the free world. He's changed our understanding of the office itself. But is it all so unprecedented? Has Donald J. Trump forever changed the office of the presidency? Or is 45 simply just another number? A blip on the radar future generations will look back on and say... What was with the hair? To help us answer questions of the future, we turn to the past and the one person who has painstakingly broken down every individual to hold the highest office in the land on her podcast, Presidential. Each episode, Washington Post reporter Lillian Cunningham finds a new and interesting way into understanding our American presidents beyond the wooden teeth and log cabin facts you may have learned in grade school. With the help of Pulitzer Prize winning biographers Doris Kearns Goodwin, David McCullough, John Meacham, and Bob Woodward, the podcast provides some historical context for the perceived chaos of our current political climate. 
I couldn't think of a more timely guest. Thank you for being here, Lillian. And thank you for sharing the pod with us today. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on, Zach. I really appreciate it. Uh, Lillian, can I just start by getting you to introduce yourself as though you were running for president? (laughs) (laughs) I'm Lillian Cunningham. I'm a journalist with The Washington Post, and I'm the creator and host of The Presidential Podcast. I can't imagine how busy you must be right now. As an expert on leadership and an expert on presidents, uh, how full is your dance card this week? <laughs> it's a busy time. It is. Inauguration is a is a big day for presidential history buffs. That's so. right. How uh, do you describe presidential, the podcast? I usually describe it by saying it's one episode on each American president in order. I started making the podcast the first week of January 2016, and um, it just so happened the math worked out that there were 44 weeks before the presidential election in 2016. So I went once a week uh, ticking up through the presidency, and it got me all the way through the election of Donald Trump. And um, it was just sort of a marathon deep dive into the history of the American presidency. I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Which will live in infamy. What your country can do for you. On January 10th, the Washington Post is launching a podcast called Presidential. As luck would have it, there are 44 weeks between the beginning of January and Election Day in November. So I'm going to explore the character, legacy, and leadership style of every single American president, starting with George Washington in week one and finishing just in time for the election. Did you did you uh, realize the undertaking that you were setting out for when you decided one a week? That is so ambitious. Um, how uh, how was it when you know just Monday morning when you're like, oh man, I got to climb this mountain again. <laughs> Yeah, I even I haven't listened back to that trailer, I don't think, since I made it. Um, <laughs> and I, you know, listen back and think, oh, my gosh, I was so naive. <laughs> um, fortunately, naive, because I if I had known how huge of an undertaking it would be, I might have been a little scared off from it. I mean, I, I knew it was obviously studying the American presidency was a huge undertaking, but I had no idea um, the work that goes into creating a podcast at the same time Uh, as you're trying to learn all this information and find all these experts. And so those sort of two forces combined led to, uh, the biggest challenge of my life for sure. What I like most about it is that you, you do find like a new or sort of an interesting sort of angle and you're like, okay, let me, uh, break down the president this way. And it's so helpful just to like, like, I just wish, I had this resource, in, you know, when I was learning about the presidents originally, because you provide a nice human angle for each and every one of them. It's so unique. I had the idea because, um, not because I was a presidential history nerd who wanted to like share all this stuff I already knew. It was really the opposite. It was that we were going into an election year and I was very cognizant of the fact that I had these huge glaring holes in my understanding of presidential history, you know, with the exception of the sort of things you learn in a high school or college history class. You know, there's no way in one hour you can like 
do an episode that covers yeah. everything about Abraham Lincoln, um, even Millard Fillmore. Millard, Millard, talk a bit about how we're taught about the American presidents and how we should be taught about the American presidents. I think you cover that in the, the Millard Fillmore uh, episode. He falls into that category of presidents who like, if you remember his name or know his name, you know it only sort of as the punchline of a joke about forgotten presidents for some legitimate reasons, you know, and uh, constraints in just the amount of time we have in a you know, school year to teach children and even adults about um, the American presidency. We skip over, you know, I would say two thirds of the U.S. presidents in our history. We focus, I think, mostly on what we've kind of come to call the great presidents. And there's a lot of merit to doing that. But I think what I sort of learned and what the podcast really emphasized for me was that there's so much value in understanding the connective tissue. And I think that's a problem a lot of us feel right now, even when we're trying to figure out, you know, what's been going on in the country the past four years and where it sits and sort of the context of American history is that like, if you only sort of know people and moments in isolation, you have a really hard time understanding how we got to where we are. And a lot of the explanation for how we got to where we are comes from those presidents and from those parts of our history that uh, we tend to glaze over. We force kids to like memorize dates and names, Republican, Democrat. But when you look at the sort of succession of power, this leads to that. Like you said, this person took over for this person because the country was thinking about that. Like when you go in order with your podcast, it's like, oh my gosh, it's such an amazing sort of just a resource for, um, you know, American history, not just about American presidents, but you learn so much about American history. The sort of fun little side effect too, is you realize like I do it. I did at least that, you know, there really aren't any boring presidents. There are, there are, you know, office holders who didn't do a whole lot to move the country forward, or there wasn't a ton that happened on their watch that like makes headlines, but, these are all people with fascinating stories. And I would say, you know, one of the biggest surprises for me, and I think from for a lot of listeners from what I've heard from them, is the degree to which like the Chester Arthur episode and the James Garfield episode and the John Tyler episode were like some of their favorites because you just, you assume that like, ah, oh, there's nothing really interesting to learn. And you're totally wrong because these these people all had pretty wild stories. Can you make Fillmore wild for us? Can you humanize him for us? I think my f- favorite detail about Millard Fillmore is just, and this actually goes for a ton of the the presidents in our history. Like he had a really really hard childhood. I mean, he was basically sold off by his family essentially as like an indentured servant, um, as an apprentice when he was young, but he didn't know how to read. He, um, you know, it took until a bit later in life and help from, um, a woman who he met later on to, to learn how to read. And he, in a kind of fun twist, became the first president to establish a library in the white house. Wow. 
I think some of the best parts of the podcast are where you where you sort of get reminders that like these are human beings and they're mm. flawed in tons of ways, but they're also um you know, in a lot of ways they had these strong wills and these like crazy stories that led them to positions of power. Mm. Trump usually gets um, sort of compared to Andrew Jackson most commonly, but uh, there was a lot of Millard Fillmore actually in there, in there too. Um, you're totally right that Andrew Jackson from the very beginning of Trump's presidency was the one who kind of came up most as a reference. And I agree with you. I don't, uh, I think there are a lot of reasons to see comparisons there, but I also think when you look across the presidency, you could find a number of other examples of men who share some parallels. I do think there are certain things about Trump's election and his time in office that are not as unprecedented as we tend to think. One of the differences is that he's, unlike Millard Fillmore, he's actually not someone who his upbringing shows a really sort of bootstraps, tough um, childhood where he sort of fought against all of the the social forces of the time to, mm-hmm. to like rise above it, which is the story for a lot of the men in our history who've made it to the White House. Um, but there are some basic things about his resume that look just about the same as almost everyone else who's held mm-hmm. the office. The big exceptions is that um, his lack of public service before serving mm. in the presidency. When you look back over time, you really don't see that with anyone else. At the very beginning, there was a very prescribed path for how you got to the presidency that usually required, usually entailed being secretary of state and being mm. vice president, serving in the military at some point. As we've moved up in time, there hasn't been as much of a narrow path for how you get there, but um, but there's still always been some sort of long history of public service that everyone else has, yeah, has it was had. By how early on it was like, it's your turn, man. You got to do it. Like, yeah. you got to go be president. Like, somebody has to do it. Go do it. And like, it's hard to think about it in those terms because now it's such a power grab that like uh, thinking about it in terms of public service is weird just struck by that by your early episodes yeah for sure i mean when you look in the early years uh the resumes of the men who held office look eerily similar to each other you know Hmm. there there was more or less a step one step two step three step four that would get you there was the word presidential uh trending in 2016 when you originally produced this podcast the way it sort of has over the past four years or do you sort of pat yourself on the back for being ahead of that one (laughs) No, I wasn't. I mean, um, my podcast did kind of come around the same time as the Hamilton craze. Mm. So I think there was there was something in the water where people were were sort of interested in American history and these figures in a way that maybe we hadn't seen um, a few years before, yeah. but. Trump, um, when my podcast started, you know, Trump was in the running, um, but he, but there was no real sense at the time that 
he was going to be like a, a real contender in the race. And so there wasn't the same, I think, fascination and obsession as there has been since in the sense of like, where does this moment fit in the arc of presidential history? I don't think was really something people were, were thinking about when I started. Now, this was originally produced, as you said, in 2016, but you've released these bonus episodes in 2020. What uh, what brought that about? What made you want to sort of return to the scene of the crime? Uh, I thought long and hard about it because 2016 and the original creation of the podcast was just this um, this huge sort of chapter of my life and my work that um, I wouldn't change for anything, but also uh, I kind of... I don't know if put to bed is the right word, but I felt like I had I had done it. I had started at George Washington. I had gotten myself through election day. It was this enormous marathon and I crossed the finish line. And when I crossed the finish line, while I knew presidential history would continue to unfold, I sort of had no intention of like running a couple more races after that. Mm-hmm. Um, but this year, it just felt like I was getting so many emails from listeners um, and, as you mentioned earlier, you know, requests to go on and help sort of put this year's election in context that I started to feel just some little nagging sense of like a public service of like, well, (laughs) if I can, if I could create some more episodes that help people to think through this moment in the way that I think the rest of the series has sort of helped educate people, then, you know, I kind of can't resist the or push back against that feeling of some sort of obligation. What I did for um, the first sort of chunk of the year was create episodes that um, I think were in the spirit of presidential, but they weren't... um, they weren't the sort of big biographical episodes about a president. They were instead a zoom in on a particular historical moment or chapter that related to the presidency that had some echoes today. So there was one episode um, that dealt particularly with some race issues. Marian Anderson. Yeah, Marian yeah. Anderson was a, a black opera singer who wasn't allowed to sing at Constitution Hall in D.C. And Franklin Roosevelt and Eleanor Roosevelt sort of stood up as president. And um, for the first time, they sort of turned the Lincoln Memorial into a place of protest. And they created this big public concert for her that became the first like civil rights event. On Easter Sunday, 75,000 Americans of all races showed up in solidarity to hear Anderson sing. They were packed shoulder to shoulder, hip to hip, down the steps and around the reflecting pool. Marian Anderson stepped up to a cluster of those old-timey microphone stands. The massive columns of the Lincoln Memorial were rising up behind her. I did an episode on Geraldine Ferraro, who is the first woman for a major party to, you know, 
be nominated as chosen as like the vice presidential candidate. That was right before Kamala Harris was announced. And then um, I also did an episode about uh, the 1918 flu pandemic Mm -hmm. and how Woodrow Wilson mishandled it. Even as the death count soared in October, the Wilson administration continued to send sick troops into combat, which only worsened the spread of the virus. They sent more and more nurses into combat too, leaving hospitals at home understaffed and overflowing with dying citizens. And they pushed American factories, building munitions for the war, to keep packing their floors to full capacity with workers. It was as if the pandemic didn't exist to the president. All that mattered was the push toward victory in November. And then I did, in the spirit of the original presidential series, I did create a Joe Biden episode once um, once he was announced the winner of the election. I uh, talked with some biographers of his and and put together sort of a classic portrait in the presidential style of his life story and what led him to the presidency. I got to tell you, I was I'm was really comforted by your bonus episodes, <laughs> like exactly what oh, you good. said. Like I, I was like, <laughs> OK, there is a precedent. OK, uh, we have been through this before. You know, it feels like your podcast can just go on and on, you know, like what would your bonus episode be like for the events that we saw unfold at the Capitol? Yeah, that's a really hard one. I mean, uh, we don't have a, a perfect parallel for that, for yeah. sure. I mean, I do think the episode that I I haven't really managed to make yet because I haven't quite figured out how to do it, um, but I think sort of ties into what we saw at the Capitol and a lot of what we've been seeing around the country is I, I think we're in need of um, a, a sort of refresher on how we got out of some of the like darkest moments mm. of division as a country when we're like just at a place where people just cannot see eye to eye, um, <laughs> which persisted for quite a while after the Civil War, of course. Um, you know, how how did we get to back to a place where there was some sense of healing, some sense of understanding, some sense of unity? And I, if I figure out how exactly to do that, I will do that episode. Your podcast shows me that though we do, that that in moments of huge national tragedy, like what we just witnessed, we do come out. We do, it, it makes, it paves the way for great leadership and the greatest presidents have come along after these moments. I don't know if I would say after these moments, mm. but I think they've come in sort of, during these moments and helped us out of them. If you could, um, if Joe, Joe Biden wasn't here, uh, and you could conjure up one president to follow 45 from the past, you can conjure up one man, one being, you have the power, you, you possess the ability. Who do you, uh, who from the past do you, do you think would be appropriate for this time in this moment? I mean, I think the obvious answer would be Lincoln, but I think the answer I'd actually give, uh, not a huge sleeper surprise answer, but would be George Washington. I mean, Mm. Lincoln obviously had tremendous foresight and leadership ability to um, 
to sort of keep the country bound. But I think that, um, you know, at the time, Lincoln was also a very polarizing leader. There were, he, you know, I think history judges him to have made all the right choices and to have done the right thing to save the country. But, um, but he was not totally loved, um, by any stretch of the imagination during the time. And so I think his ability to totally heal the nation was, you know, slightly compromised by that. Um, George Washington, on the other hand, and of course, time's totally different, but he, you know, sort of goes down in our history as a person who had total love and respect from people of all political persuasions. I do think that someone right now who who had the ability to sort of rise above political party um, and serve as, you know, a fountain of sort of inspiration and, and demand and command the respect um, of people who really disagree is what we would need right now. Mm. This um, idea of succession of power, has it ever been close to being um, compromised in a way that it is now? Yeah, for sure. There have been three presidents in our history who didn't attend the inaugural, you know, were able to, but didn't, chose not to attend the inaugurations Mm -hmm. of their successors. Um, And the very first one was John Adams, our second president. You know, Hmm. he was so... Um, upset about the loss to Thomas Jefferson. He, Adams served one term and didn't get reelected. And he lost to, you know, at the time Jefferson was like his bitter rival who represented everything he disagreed with. So I think even back to the very beginning of our country, we have examples of sore losers. We have examples of, of people who, um, you know, are not sort of doing all that they can to help a transition go smoothly. And you can march all the way up through history and um, you see crazy elections like in 1876, the election of Rutherford B. Hayes. Like that was undecided up until basically the day before his inauguration. Hmm. Um, And there there was so much disagreement and fracture in the country over whether his election was legitimate. I was again comforted though, when I did find those examples, as you said, um, particularly the Teddy Roosevelt episode, when I learned that he was just decrying uh, rigged election after he lost. But there are a number of other uh, allusions to 45 when I was listening to Roosevelt and, and uh, you know, you talk about him using the bully pulpit, an unstoppable ball of energy did whatever he could right up to the edge of the law. Uh, He had an extreme exercise of executive power and was constantly dancing in exuberance. I was just struck by like, (laughs) okay, I kind of know that guy. Yeah. I mean, he was also someone who, uh, you know, a huge part of um, his ability to sort of rise to power and then to captivate the American public when he was in power was that he was he was like a master of 
the media of that day. Hmm. Like he and, you know, it wasn't Twitter, but he totally understood um, the power and the art of, um, of communication. And, you know, I think ultimately everyone sort of decides for themselves if a president is great or horrible based on just, you know, what the actions they take sort of do to the country and the way that they propel it. But if you look at the actual tools that a lot of these presidents used, they're not necessarily dissimilar between a president we would call great and a president we would call horrible. You know, Hmm. they were masters of similar things. It's just, what did they use those tools for? Now, you have sort of a hotly contested question uh, on your podcast uh, that you admit yourself. Some people love, some people do not. I personally loved it. It humanized <laughs> these people, these, this succession of bearded men for me. Uh, you ask what you, <laughs> you ask um, your interviewees uh, what it would be like going on a date with these men. And so I thought it would be interesting to hear about some of the dates that you've been on and maybe <laughs> start with, um, you know, your top three sort of the more interesting dates in, in, in hanging out with these presidents. Um, it was partly about my kind of pushing these historians and biographers who tend to get asked the same kind of questions and answer questions in the same sort of textbook way to like actually try to bring these people to life a bit more. Um, So I did find that that question, it just kind of like it changed the tone and it, Mm. it made, um, it made these figures that I think could come off as very dusty feel uh, fresh and alive for listeners in a way that, you know, even if it made me look silly, I think, it was in service of, of getting some deeper insights. So whatever, I'm happy to sacrifice myself. Whatever. Okay, so I found like yeah. some of the most memorable things about presidents came from that question. Uh, so let's see. And these are, okay, I'm going to, one more caveat, which is that yeah. um, these are totally not presidents, I would say, make for the best date. It's just like, <laughs> would I gain a totally new level of insight if I had, you know, a couple hours to spend Got it. one-on-one with this person. So, um, so one of my, I think like first come to mind answers is actually Teddy Roosevelt because okay. he, while he's someone who we do actually learn a lot about in school, I think even after all the time I spent uh, reading biographies of him and talking to biographers of his, it's still so hard for me to picture what someone with that level of enthusiasm and, I mean, as one historian said, like he was a Tasmanian devil. Like he was just kind of off the charts, hyped up all the time about everything. And I just don't know that I've ever met anyone in my life who I think has that level of intensity around everything he does. So so I would say take a date with him. One, because you're going to do something crazy and it'll be like adventurous and outdoorsy and you'll be scared and you'll have a great story from it. Um, but also I think you just can't pass up the opportunity to like witness 
firsthand <laughs> what someone like that could be like, you know, what it would be like to be in the presence of someone like that. Um, I think my, yeah, the top ones are like, they're kind of, I'm sort of ashamed of myself that they're like, they seem like they're obvious, but you know, I think you have to take a date with Lincoln too, Gotta, but I don't do think, it. I don't think you do it to necessarily ask him questions about like the civil war and binding the country together. You can get all of that from reading the books. I think you take that date because um, when you sort of dive into the details of his personality, I think it's really striking the degree to which he was uncomfortable in his own skin. He was very awkward, particularly around women. Like he, he just had a, an awkwardness to his sort of social life um, that like doesn't look like the sort of charisma we see from a lot of other presidents. Uh, and also like a, a streak of very sort of dark humor. You know, he had a history of depression. Like I just think that there's so much that would be revealed about him if you could meet him in person that hmm. kind of cuts through the history book story of just like the great man who saved the union. He's uh he's complicated. He's the Dylan McKay that you would yeah, date, not the Jason Priestley. You don't want to date the Jason <laughs> Priestley. You want you want Lincoln. <laughs> you do. You do want Lincoln. All right. I'm d- okay. We're we're dating Teddy. We're dating Lincoln. And then this one, I actually, it's really hard to say whether it would go in the go on a date or absolutely don't go on a date with him category. <laughs> um, but I'll put him in the go on a date category. It, uh, would be Thomas Jefferson because mm. basically, I don't know if this means I'm a masochist or what, but <laughs> Thomas Jefferson was really the only president where I asked a historian, you know, that blind date question and her answer was like, you don't want to do that. Mm. Like you really don't like you would go on one date with him and you would never want to go on a second date with him. He's just (laughs) like, he is interested in a lot of things. Um, but he would not be interested like in you and wow and it was just such a strong answer about his character that it's like well now i kind of would want to go on a date with him because i would totally want to experience what it would be like to get that insight about someone who could hold so many interests and have such a like strong intellect and you would expect, I mean, he could talk to you about anything you could find mm. interesting. And yet, um, that like personability aspect s- seemed to be so low. It's like there's just so much going on. I mean, he also, one of my favorite details about him is like, he hated public speaking. You know, you can't even imagine someone who would be president today who's totally terrified of and hates public speaking. But that was possible back then because most of the way he became known was through his writing. Writing, right. Um, but I think he just, yeah, he he was not someone who 
had that sort of like in-person charisma. He didn't have an ability to connect with people. You could respect a lot of what he did politically and still not find him a person you necessarily wanted to spend much time with. Well, you are clearly um, an expert on your presidents and on who to date, (laughs) but uh, are you an expert on your own podcast Uh, We have a segment here in these parts called How Well Do You Know Your Own Pod? I'm going to ask you three questions about your podcast. Answer two of those three questions correctly. (laughs) And this here presidential license plate. Whoa, cool. I know. Isn't that awesome? We're going to put that on the pod swag wall behind us. Love it. Two out of three questions correct. How well do you know your pod? In FDR's famous Pearl Harbor address. What was the word infamy before it was famously edited? Oh, no. (laughs) No. Oh, come on. Um, Say that. I know this helped me when I said it. I mean, was it history? But, oh, shoot. I'm going to go with history, but I don't actually think that's right. Let's roll the tape. In his original draft... It says, yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in world history. The United States of America was simultaneously and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Well, then, as he's editing draft number one, he crosses out world history and he replaces it with infamy. I'm going to give do, it to you. I, I asked that? for the word and you gave me a, a word. Give you one so of the two. Yeah. You did give me one of the two. That is correct. <laughs> that was cool. Uh, famously edited to infamy from world history. Number two, where did the Republican National Committee send Warren G. Harding's estranged lover so she wouldn't interfere with his campaign? Okay, I love everything about the Warren G. Harding story. It's so <laughs> it is wild, wild and horrible and crazy, and I love it. Um, they sent her on. She went on like a very long cruise and tour, I want to say Japan. It might have been through multiple countries in Asia, but I'm going to go with Japan. Let's have a listen. So they decide to give Carrie Phillips $20,000 in cash and they send her and her husband on an all expenses paid, very long, slow trip to Japan over the course of the entire election year. So they can't surface any details of the affair during his campaign for president. Yes. Boom. Two out of three. You got it. Okay. You're going on the wall. (laughs) That story is nuts. Do you want to talk a little bit about Warren G? Unless unless you're going to talk about him later and who not to date. (laughs) Well, he would definitely go in the who not to date category. Um, But it would be a really interesting date. So I don't know. Maybe, he would be most li- likely to get involved in a, a sexting scandal, Warren G, right? I mean, he oh, would yeah. today be most likely mistresses, children out of wedlock. Again, a precedence for their uh, being estranged lovers to these powerful political men. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, he wrote about a lot of it in very sordid detail. So <laughs> we we have records. <laughs> Is that the one? That, which Who had the letters that were recently released yeah that was warren harding that's warren g yeah there are a bunch of love letters of his that he sent to uh 
a mistress that were kept under like lock and key for 50 years and then recently um, opened and uh, very, very racy. Actually, we do have, I, I did pull the clip of, <laughs> <laughs> well, we should, while we're talking about it, we should play a letter from Warren G that was recently released a couple of years back. Uh, the family had said no opening these letters until uh, a certain year. And finally that moratorium had expired and we got to read Warren G's. It's like reading like Obama's texts or somebody now. This is crazy that you get to just read someone's personal letters to their lover. But uh, you, you, you have uh, featured one of Warren G's scandalous letters on your pod. And in it, uh, he has a fun euphemism for uh, a certain appendage. Let's see if you can uh, pick that out. I went home last night in the rain. In the night, it turned to snow. And the surface is covered under six inches of snow. And the trees are robed in white. A beautiful winter scene. When I got home, I was too tired to sleep. But I rested, and you were summoned in finally. And you came, a vision vividly plain. A goddess in human form. And a perfect form, clad only in flowing hair. And you were joyously received, and Jerry came and insisted on staying. Jerry. Yeah, you got to read between the lines there. That would be saying. Scandal. My goodness. He was quite a writer, though. (laughs) Yeah, it is beautiful language. (laughs) Uh, Last question to see where you make it on the pod shelf. Are you a top shelf pod or a bottom shelf pod? Get three out of three. You're going on the top shelf. What accounts for the discrepancy between the number of episodes about presidents, 45, and the number of presidents, 46? Oh, good. An easy one. Um, That is all thanks to Grover Cleveland, who's the only president we've had who served two terms, but not back-to-back. So it totally messed up our numbering system. Greedy Um, Grover getting three terms. Again, precedents for someone getting booted and then running again uh that time making it back into office though yeah oh boy uh let's take a quick break and when we come back three uh dates that would be not so interesting we are here to fill the role of looking for great content for you so you don't have to find it If you like this show, please check us out. Subscribe, visit thepodspotter.com on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at thepodspotter for lots of good stuff. Uh, Please, if you haven't already, leave a review. It really helps. Subscribe, rate, review, judge us on Apple Podcasts, and spread the word. We release every Monday with a review of a great new pod. We're going to keep plowing ahead, keep going, keep listening. If you have suggestions for future pods, drop us a note on any of our social media platforms or thepodspotter.com. Thank you. During the break, uh, it was announced that uh, Trump won't attend the inauguration. Are we surprised? Yeah, I saw that coming. Fourth time. Fourth time in history. Is that right? Yeah, Andrew Johnson was uh, the most recent, so not very recent. Wow. <laughs> um, how about three dates that might not be so good to go on, or less interesting, we'll call them. All right. Um, I'm probably, I'm going to get, slammed maybe for this but i'm just gonna say these are not these would actually probably be lovely 
dates. They just, I don't know that I would really learn anything from them. I, like if I could t- time travel and I could take the opportunity, I just don't know that I would get a whole lot out of meeting these men in person okay. that I don't already know. So um, I'm going to say George H.W. Bush. Dubs. He was so polite and so by the book um, that I really got the impression, you know, you would actually have, you would have a lovely date with him. He would be mm-hmm. a total gentleman. He would be interested in talking about whatever you want to talk, talk about. It would all be totally fine mm. and great. But like, why go on that date? You know, <laughs> because he, I don't think the bush that you would see on that date would look a whole lot different from the bush that we sort of know. So I would say in that same vein, like I wouldn't, Take the blind date with Joe Biden. Is it too early to include Joe Biden here? <laughs> no, you can. <laughs> but Joe. like, that was one of the um, a detail in doing the Joe Biden episode that I I found most interesting was that Evan Osnos, um, who's a New Yorker writer and wrote a recent really great biography of Joe Biden, said he is like one of the only politicians. Evan Osnos has ever met who like the way that he is one-on-one when the cameras are off and whatever is basically the same Uh as how he is when he is in front of a crowd and the cameras are on. Like he is um, again, you know, he seems really interested in you and talking about what you want to talk about. He's got a charisma, but like, he just kind of is the guy he is. Great president. That would make a great president. Bad date. Bad yeah. Date. And it might make a great person to actually date or to actually <laughs> marry. But like if you have this opportunity as a like presidential history time traveler, like that would be a waste. You know, you wouldn't come back with anything juicy. You focus in that episode. Well, he focuses a bit on the, uh, you know, overcoming the stutter. And he talks about, which I found interesting, how... Joe would often pre-plan what he was going to say to people as he was like walking up to them. He'd have like kind of have the script to overcome that adversity and how that propelled him to want more and to do more public speaking. And I just found it so interesting how, how many of these men um, had some adversity in their life, some human tragedy uh, or something to overcome is like some sort of tragedy necessary to propel someone to hold great, you know, a position of power? Or is it just that life is hard and everyone <laughs> sort of suffers something? I do think it's uncanny the number of um, presidential stories, like beginning stories, origin stories of their childhoods that were particularly difficult. Um, the number of presidents who, uh, had fathers who died before they were born or abusive fathers, a lot of issues with fathers was a a very common theme. Um, And a number of presidents who grew up in like extreme poverty, 
poor educations, um, very limited, what you would think would be a pretty limited scope of options for what they could do with their life. And yet, um, I think that, you know, there are some people who break under such hardship, but the ones who don't and the ones who like lean into it and through it, um, can end up with these like really steel wills hmm. that that do sort of propel them um, farther in life and then kind of crystallize a sense that they you, you I heard this a lot with presidents like that they would have a sense that they wanted to like prove the world wrong. They <laughs> wanted to prove their town wrong. Then they wanted to prove their state wrong. Then they wanted, you know, they like, they had this expanding universe and sense of like, you thought my life would end up this way. And <laughs> I'm going to show you, I can do so much more with it than what you ever would have expected of me. Ah, uh, Yeah. Andrew Jackson used anger and confrontation as tools throughout his life, starting at an early age. He would regularly challenge people to fights, some estimates even say he was in close to a hundred duels, and he would use these partly to move up and cement his place in the social structure. As Steve alluded to, in one of these duels, he killed lawyer Charles Dickinson, but not before Dickinson puts a bullet into Jackson so close to his heart that Jackson can never have it removed. He also has that crazy, like he bore the scar of like a soldier or something like that. Somebody. Yeah, that would... I mean, he was he was basically kidnapped when he was young, Jesus. along with his brother, by British soldiers, who then um, and was slashed across his cheeks with a British soldier's saber and had scars the rest of his life. Um, For not and, like what shine and shoes or something. Yeah, not like, like seemingly. Um, yeah. Not that you want to excuse someone's belligerence, but mm. you start to understand how he had this reputation as being such an aggressive person mm. when you look back at his early story and, you know, his parents both ended up dying when he was young. Uh, he's basically an orphan. He had siblings die. Certainly his uh, legacy didn't age well uh, with well-documented atrocities to Native Americans. Is, is there a particular president that you can think of whose legacy maybe was not great at the time, but has aged better over to like the more we sort of remove ourselves from the situation? We're like, oh man, no, that guy actually was doing some good stuff. I don't think we spend as much time going back and sort of rewriting people's stories or reassessing a story and saying like, oh, we were too hard on him then, but now we realize like that was actually pretty great. We do a lot more of the opposite. You know, we hold someone like Thomas Jefferson or Woodrow Wilson up on a pedestal for a while. And then as we sort of evolve as a country and as a society, parts of who they were that we kind of glossed over before, um, you know, in both of those cases of certain racism, um, we then sort of hold them accountable for later and it tarnishes a reputation that used to be brighter. But um, I think someone who we should spend more time thinking about is John Quincy Adams. 
Um, so that was John Adams' son. He served as president um, right before Andrew Jackson. Um, and he was vehemently anti-slavery. And he's a pretty forgotten president, and he was not an effective president, in part because he was so passionate and so sure of his position as the right one, which history has borne out like he he was right about that. Um, mm. but but at the time he, you know, he was so totally blind to how anyone could hold a different view and was so against any sense of compromise with anyone that he couldn't actually move the needle at all, really, as president on getting us any closer to a to being a country without slavery. It's sort of the thesis of your uh, whole pod, which you sum up perfectly in your Woodrow Wilson episode. The whole reason that this is important, that we do this, that we think about the John Quincy Adams is, and the lesser known presidents and all of them, is that it's important, and I'm just going to quote you here, that we understand what parts of our history have been shaped by these leaders and which parts have marched on to something better regardless of them. I think that's just perfectly summed up. You have a third good date for us, though. Oh, a third a third. I would pass on a date? Oh, oh sorry, not interesting. Yes, yes. <laughs> you got Bush. Yeah, my third, I go way back. My third, I would, I think I'd pass on the date with James K. Polk. I know okay. that'll shock everyone <laughs> who thought, what? But he'd be so fun. No. Um, again, I just, he, he was a pretty severe character. He's actually um, considered basically the only president in our, in our history who actually fulfilled all of his campaign promises. Like, he went into what? the presidency saying, you know, the four things he was going to do. He got into office. He made sure to do them, and then he was done. Yeah, yeah. Just a tough guy um, without a lot of humor and grace and sort of creativity to the way he went through life. Passing yeah, on the bulk. I'll pass. <laughs> I want to do, uh, you've given us three good and three bad, but I want to do one speed dating round, and you just fire off as best as you can. The answer to our speed dating round of presidents. Are you ready? All right, I guess. All right. Who's the funniest president? Mm, um, I I actually think Lincoln is the answer Lincoln? from what I know. Yeah, I think he had a really wicked, great sense of humor. Which president is the best tipper? Ooh, probably Chester Arthur. <laughs> Why Chester? <laughs> Why, Why Chester? Um, he kind of known for just being a a big spender. He loved like really expensive suits and dining at expensive restaurants. You guys would eat well. You would eat very well. He would take you to all the finest places and he probably in that same spirit would, you know, leave a big fat tip. Best looking. That's tricky. Maybe a JFK or a Franklin Pierce. No one thinks of Harding. Franklin Pierce. Harding was a looker. My, those features. He had he had striking eyebrows. Striking brows. I remember that from your pod. Uh, most likely to pull a Tom Cruise from Top Gun and sing to you. 
in some ways, George Washington. I don't think with Mm -hmm. the singing, but I think if you extended that out to other things, like he was known to be a really great dancer Mm. and would like show off his moves on the dance floor. So Washington, wow. (laughs) Isn't he tall? Very tall, yeah. How about uh, most likely to make you pay? Maybe like a Calvin Coolidge. (laughs) Someone he very fiscally responsible, very... you know, a penny counter. So yeah, he'd probably, I don't know if he'd make you pay because he he Mm. had good manners, but he'd probably split it with you. (laughs) Split the check. Wasn't Jackson actually a pretty early egalitarian? Like, wasn't he surprisingly because of his mom? Yeah. I mean, he also was like deeply devoted to his wife. I mean, he was, he was absolutely adoring of her. Um, And she died right before... No, I don't mm, think he would yeah, go yeah. on. I mean, he would be very loyal to her. Yeah. She died right before, well, between his election and his inauguration. Um, like on Christmas Eve, I think. And he attributed like some of the political process to that, right? Yeah, he said it was such a it was such a rancorous election. And, you know, if we think about like, the press and elections now. I mean, it's been part of the story from the beginning of the country, but he um, he felt that she was just sort of unnecessarily dragged through the mud mm. and that it just put an enormous amount of stress on her and that she died kind of from like a heart attack, um, just from all the anxiety of of being the wife of a presidential candidate who went through a lot. That was sort of the early um, example of our, our modern day sort of uh, political campaigning. We see vitriol too in the Adams Jefferson election. Basically, mm. ever since you know George Washington, we all unanimously agreed should be the first president. <laughs> the first and one, and then nothing. Ever since, since oh ever since we've. Uh, we've disagreed and, you know, there have, there's been sort of a story that has built from John Adams onward of, uh, you know, campaign smearing and, um, but the, yeah, the Jackson election, uh, was just particularly nasty and personal. Speaking of nasty, which president would most likely get drunk over order cause a scene (laughs) uh probably andrew johnson who was drunk at the vice presidential inauguration or and gave a totally drunken rambling crazy speech that'd be a fun date yeah (laughs) (laughs) now uh lillian we spent a lot of time talking about powerful men on our podcast here today but uh what powerful women uh, come to mind when you think about who helped sort of further the, the role of women in politics, which uh, strong women behind the men. I think probably at the top of the list, you have to put Eleanor Roosevelt. She really transformed the role of first lady. I mean, she, she took such an active role in shaping policy, um, both, you know, helping to sort of guide and advise her husband, Franklin Roosevelt, but also um, she had her own set of 
issues, her own policy agenda. I mean, she really just dedicated herself for the time that he was in office to sort of using the platform that she had however best she could. There are a lot of other interesting first lady stories, though. I think Edith Wilson has a really interesting story. Um, You know, Woodrow Wilson had a stroke during his second term as president, and Edith Wilson basically took over running the country for him. Um, It wasn't super well-known at the time. They tried to hide the degree to which Wilson was incapacitated, Um, but she, she sort of stood in and made all the decisions in his stead for that, you know, that last stretch of his presidency. Wow. There are certainly examples as far back as like Dolly Madison. Like she was, Mm. uh, she was a real force and, but she wasn't really, she wasn't really concerned too much with policy. Um, but she did, you know. Of the two, of James Madison and Dolly Madison, she was the one with, like, the real charisma, and she was the one who could help her husband behind the scenes sort of strike deals with people. Um, Mm. She was just – she was uh, much better at that sort of, like, interpersonal politicking than he was. Um, But I do – you know, I would still come down uh, with – thinking that Eleanor Roosevelt was really was really the one who most dramatically transformed and re-envisioned the role that a woman could play. Now, you were in charge of leadership at the Washington Post, and the sort of whole goal of this podcast was just to analyze and look at leadership. What are some of the commonalities of, of great leadership that you learned from this whole process? I think one big one that emerged for me over the arc of all of these stories was empathy. It takes a number of different forms, but um, I think the greatest and the most effective presidents had a high degree of empathy, which meant both that they could connect with the public, they could connect with citizens because they, in the sort of, you know, classic uh phrasing of it you know they could feel people's pain <laughs> and they really meant it that they they really were able to sort of tap into how citizens around the country were feeling why they were feeling that way <laughs> and they um they knew how to to sort of address that and to yeah. offer solutions that would resonate i think that your uh most clear example of that is probably in your uh, FDR episode. He kind of very calmly explains what he's going to do. And he's treating the American people like intelligent consumers of information. He once said that before each fireside chat, um, I tried to picture a mason at work on a new building, a girl behind a counter, a farmer in his field. He tried to picture the actual American people and what they were thinking and what they were feeling and how he could reach them. You know, what he understood about great communication is that even if you're the president and you're giving some sort of high-flying speech about intricate policy, everything starts with empathy. Oh, my gosh. I also think we think of empathy often as a pretty mushy, sort of soft concept, but I also think it's a a really strategic tool um, and that another version that it takes is like it's an ability to 
bend other people to hmm. your will. What are some others? Totems of leadership you discovered. I actually think this is kind of a spinoff of empathy too, but I think the ability to get inside not just the sort of the American public's head, but particularly the Congress <laughs> and mm. a lot of the presidents who've been really effective at working their will, you know, they were able to do that because they were really good Compromisers is one word, but they were really good at being able to get what they wanted by understanding what the other person or the other side wanted. And so figuring out like what exactly they could offer that would appeal to that person and get that person to give them the thing they wanted in exchange. So someone like Lyndon mm. Johnson was like famous for this and he would use a number of other tactics as well, some physical intimidation and bullying. <laughs> but but one of the skills he had was that he had a real ability to see what um, people in both parties wanted and to like zero in on exactly what lever, you know, he could he mm. could pull in order to to sort of flip them to his side. Um and I mean, we were talking about John Quincy Adams, but like that was sort of the opposite of what someone like Adams had. He didn't have that ability. He had maybe all the right principles, but he didn't know how to get other people over to his side. Mm. And as a result, he just couldn't be effective as president. Um, and I do think, again, we talked about it, but you can use it for good or for ill, but like Communication is totally key. I mean, so much of the presidency is about communication. And I think a number of our presidents who are most remembered, whether they're remembered well or they're remembered not as well, they're remembered because of, you know, for the speeches they gave. They're remembered for the, um, you know, in someone like Thomas Jefferson's case, like the Declaration of Independence he drafted, like mm. people's words um, are what sort of form the basis of our history. And they're, in a lot of cases, all that's like really left for us as time goes on to judge people by. I have to say, like one of the most fun parts of binging your pod was watching when a, a, a human aligned with a form of communication. You know, when, as you mentioned, Jefferson in letters, yeah. bad public speaker, but man, could he write? And that was what was required at the time because that was writing. And then you get like Woodrow Wilson, who was great on the radio. And then you get television, you know, with uh, Kennedy and and uh, and you watch the technology meet the man in the moment. Um, and now Twitter, of course, you know, obviously gets the... Uh, you know, who gets the bad rap of sort of like Trump being the master messenger with Twitter. Um, but watching these men align with these, these moments in time was really fascinating. They were tools definitely that all of these men used while they were in office, but also even perhaps more crucially, they were tools that helped get them into office. Yeah. Lillian, I, uh, ask everyone, for a piece of audio that they would like inducted into the podcast Hall of Fame 20 years from now when that is built. And there is the presidential kiosk in the back left-hand corner. 
as attendants come up and press the little red button, what sound or piece of audio would you like from your podcast to be played? Um, I'm going to say either the theme song, <laughs> just because I um, it's part of what's like lodged in my sure. heart and soul. Um, it was just like a, a sort of spin on Hail to the Chief that we composed for it. Oh, it's original um, composition? Yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah. And, um, Hail to the Chief's public domain at this point. You didn't have to pay anybody. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we did some neat sort of different versions of it so that the sound of the podcast would move up in time um, from sort of like a Ken Burnsy oh, violin cool. version of Hail to the Chief to then like a jazzy, rocky version as we... Yeah, you use it really um, effectively to pull the heartstrings sometimes. <laughs> yeah. But um, so I'd say that or I don't know why this is the thing that comes to mind, but on for the very last episode, sort of of the original series of presidential, um, I mean, that episode basically the night that Trump won the election and um, when the race was called, it was late at night and I was in the Washington Post newsroom and I you know, the newsroom is only a few blocks from the White House. And so I decided to walk down to the White House and just see if there were people celebrating or protesting or what was happening. Um, and I passed by this man playing bagpipes and like a small group gathered around him. And it was actually really hard to tell whether it was um, joyous or somber because bagpipes kind of have that like mixed sound to them. Um but it was like it was eerie and haunting and um and it's a moment I'll always remember just walking out in the middle of the night and hearing these bagpipes by the White House. And it ended up in that final episode. And I don't know, to me it was just sort of like I couldn't have scripted it, but it was just sort of the perfect last sound for the podcast. Sort of every emotion all at once. Uh, anything to tease? Any new bonus episodes or anything coming out? What's the future hold for presidential? Well, um, we don't have an episode scheduled right now on tap. I can tease ahead. But hmm. what we do have um, is on the evening of the inauguration, so like 8 p.m. on Wednesday, January 20th, um, we're going to do our first ever presidential trivia event. Um, where I'm going to host it and we're going to ask a bunch of um, easy to super hard <laughs> questions about nice. presidential history um, that hopefully will be, you know, a fun thing people can do just through Zoom from the safety of their own homes uh, to right. test their knowledge. And um, it'll be fun since most of, you know, the podcasts are, it's kind of a one-way thing. I mm. just talk and people listen um that it'll be fun to finally do an event where it feels like people can yeah. join and anyway so that's the that's the thing on our radar well it exists as a tremendous resource and a tremendous public service and again i wish i had it in high school when i had to listen to the presidents because i learned more you know in a few hours of, of listening to your pod than i probably did in any world cultures class so i do thank you for that thanks for having me on zach i do um this thing lasts five minutes. 
No one is listening. I don't know if you've learned, listened to our podcast. But yeah, no one is I listening have. to the last five <laughs> minutes of any podcast. And so mm-hmm. this is where I uh, take the time to just, you know, do whatever I want. Recite poetry, tell off a former loved one, whatever. This is our time because no one is here anymore. They are, they're off uh, watching the inauguration. So in honor of um, all the dates uh, and dating conversation, I thought I'd, I'd talk about one of my worst first. Uh, it wasn't a blind date because I asked the person out, mm-hmm. but uh, one of my worst dates ever was actually um, going to see The Notebook. I asked a gal out I just met, uh, and uh, we went to see The Notebook. I had to you know meet her parents first, and we go and see this you know, beautiful Ryan Gosling, Amy Adams movie on a first date, surprisingly bad first date movie because <laughs> you get like three quarters of the way through this thing and James Gardner's crying about his, you know, wife and he's losing his mind and it's so intense. And, you know, there's that scene where they're like kissing and it's raining and uh, my date like reaches over and she grabs my hand and she's just bawling her eyes out and looking at me with this intense you know sort of film happen and like it was just so much for like a <laughs> stupid 17 year old boy like i was just like oh my god i was like i'm not getting married get me out of here and i don't think i i don't i don't know that i called her again and i do feel i feel bad about that but uh i would say notebook bad bad first date movie bad first date movie too much go light go light <laughs> I guess I could tell a dating story then from a little want. bit. Doesn't I, matter. I wasn't planning on that, but um, Good. yeah, I'll do that. So <laughs> I'll say, um, well, this will just be a little story that if anyone's listening to this and has listened to presidential, it might be f- fun because I never, I don't think I've ever talked about it like publicly at all. But um, the, you know, for each episode, I would have on historians and biographers, but I often would all have on as guests, um, other Washington Post journalists who their expertise somehow intersected with like a theme of the episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and for the James Buchanan episode, I had on as my guest a, a reporter who kind of sat right behind me, but who I never really worked with, um, Jim Tankersley, who is an economics reporter. And he was on the James Buchanan episode. And we became friends. Um, and he started asking me out on dates. And Whoa. I was like, I, you seem very nice. But like, first of all, and sort of first and foremost, like, I am so totally swamped with this presidential <laughs> podcast. Like, I, I truly uh, lived at the newsroom. I had a sleeping bag under my I desk. I can't imagine. I cannot imagine. Um, yeah. I was like, I, I truly have no time. Yeah. for this at all plus we work together so i don't you know um but he just he was like okay well how about not a date how about a coffee and it would be like oh okay gosh. well i could use some caffeine so like i'll get coffee with you and he kept asking and anyway finally when it was the theodore roosevelt week um there's this restaurant in washington dc called teddy and the bully bar which is all theodore roosevelt themed and that week he was like, how about to celebrate the end of the Theodore Roosevelt week of the podcast, you go to Teddy and the Bully Bar with me for dinner. And I was just like, damn it, that is too clever. And like, I'm in this whole presidential mode. And like, how am I supposed to say no to dinner at Teddy and the Bully Bar the week that I like published the Theodore Roosevelt episode? 
That's good. So I said yes, and anyway, I am now married to him, <laughs> and he is Whoa. not Theodore Roosevelt, <laughs> Jim so Tankersley. Cool. Um, wow! And uh, yes, he what a cool story. He is working downstairs on his own economics story as I as I do this interview. Well, that's a beautiful story. <laughs> Yeah, um, but so I don't know how many people who've listened to the podcast know that I'm now married nah, to. We got an exclusive there, guys. There you My go. My goodness. <laughs> well, I want to uh, just thank you again and uh, end with a, a piece of audio I also picked as my favorite uh, from that very same 2016 episode because it was so raw and it was so, it uh, really captured what sort of everyone was walking around with in 2016 uh here in new york certainly this sort of like cloud of what in the world is going to happen and you interview your friend dan and he uh you ask him this very serious question and it's sort of um i thought it was probably comforting to hear then and can also be comforting uh to hear now and so we'll have that take us out and at the end of it i believe we get some of that uh, hail to the chief uh, composition that you um, made originally for your podcast. Thanks again, Lillian. Thanks. Just as a very last thing, I think so many people do feel dispirited by this election and it, it was long and raw. Is there anything that sort of beneath it all lends some hopefulness? Well, I, I mean, I would say the American people are very resilient. You know, there's a, there's a certain common sense about the country. Um, and we faced difficult periods historically. This is the way America has always been. We've moved forward. We've adapted to the times. We've dealt with big challenges. We get through them. And I think that if, if there's anything that, that we should all, you know, take at the end of this very long and difficult campaign is that we're working our way through a lot of things. It wasn't just that we're working our way through a contest between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. The country's changing. The country's going through a transition, a, a transformation. People are learning how to live with the new country that we're in. And I think that people are coming to terms with what this new America is. This has been another episode of The Pod Spotter, where we showcase the pods that you need to know about. And if you have one that we should know about, please let us know. Visit thepodspotter.com on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram at The Pod Spotter. Thank you. This has been Zach Robinos. The Pod Spotter is created by the Price Brothers, produced by Oink Inc. Radio, associate producer Tori Adams and is recorded and produced at Baker Sound in Philadelphia. Philadelphia.